There are many myths out there about Christianity that are, frankly, dangerous for Christians. We believe them because we read it on a bumper sticker, or more likely these days we saw something on Pinterest or Instagram. But they're either simply not in the Bible or are a twisting of Scripture. And because we are, by and large, um, so poorly educated in the Scriptures, we don't know how to understand or discern the truth sometimes. And you need to understand, I'm not pointing my finger, I was, um, I put myself in the same category. I, too, am a product of American evangelicalism, sort of the casual Christianity that surrounds us. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. That is a verse, Paul said those words, it's not about athletic competition. Don't post a picture of that um, verse on your workout selfie from the gym. Paul wrote that to encourage and remind the Philippian church that as the Lord has sustained him through all kinds of other persecutions, he will certainly strengthen him in prison. Here's another that we often take out of context and kind of twist around. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That verse was not written by the Lord on a card to the people of Israel upon their graduation from high school. That's the Lord telling his people to settle in. Because of your sin, you're going to be living in exile for a while. But it's only going to be 70 years. And then you will repent and I will bring you home. Because even with as wicked as you have been, I am faithful and will not give up on you. Probably the most famous verse that people like to take out of context. It's, it's usually quoted in one of those sort of mic drop moments when their sin is confronted. Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 1, Judge not, lest you be judged. Sinners love this one because it gets us out of all kinds of repenting. These days, one of the highest cultural values, it seems, it seems to be universal, is tolerance. Unless, of course, we as Christians happen to disagree with the world's beliefs or lifestyles or opinions, and then we're extremely intolerant. And, and so the world loves to point their finger at us and say, judge not, lest you be judged. That verse is a it's not a warning for us to never speak out against certain sinful behaviors or actions. In fact, just a couple of paragraphs after he says that, in the same sermon, Jesus also explains that the true disciple will be recognized by his fruit, by his holy living, the outcome of their lives. In addition to that, we're also called to, in the Great Commission to go and make disciples. And a big part of making disciples is, is, is about helping others wage war against their sin. 
Matthew 7, where Jesus says this, judge not lest you be judged, that entire section is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and and it's a a warning against self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Jesus is saying that if we're going to correct someone, if we're going to repent someone of their sin, then we must, be ex- we must expect to be held to the same standard. And it's the biblical standard. And I bring up these examples this morning um, because the last verse of today's passage is one of those verses that is um, often taken out of context. It's often twisted and, and even misquoted. It's one of those verses that, that when it is misquoted, it's used with good intentions, I will admit that, but it actually can have disastrous and even, even anti-gospel results. See, sometimes people will read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and they will interpret it to say something like this, God will never give you more than you can handle, but that is dangerously demonstrably and patently false. God will regularly give you more than you can handle. In fact, to say that God will never give you more than you can handle goes against the entire redemptive storyline of the Bible. He regularly gives His people more than they can handle so as to increase our dependence upon Him. We're going to see this today as we read this. So let me read the whole passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. Let's read this together. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's just stop and pray. Father, as we work through your word today, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, help us to understand, give us eyes to see that we might behold the wondrous things of your word that we might behold the beauty of Christ in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation, that we might understand redemption and provision that you have poured out so richly on us through Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, in the previous chapter, as we're working through 1 Corinthians, um, in chapter 9, Paul did two things. So just a really fast review. At the beginning of the chapter, he laid out a, a defense for financially supporting those who minister the word to the church, for paying the pastor. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And then in the second half of the chapter, he also laid out his personal reasons for giving up that right, his right to fair pay for the sake of the gospel. And he did all of that. He wrote all of chapter 9 as an example for the Corinthians as to why they should be why they should be willing to give up their right to eat whatever foods they wanted in order, to, in order to instead care for the new believers in their midst, to help them uh, and keep them from, from being a stumbling block and stumbling back into their old life of idolatry. And as we pick up the letter here in chapter 10, it seems, if you're reading through this from front to back, this 1 Corinthians, as we pick it up here in chapter 10, it, it looks like Paul has once again sort of made a shift, like he's coming at them from left field all of a sudden. Um, but he's actually making a surprise connection between the fate of those that we sometimes now call the wilderness generation, that is, those people of Israel whom Moses led out of Egypt, but because of their sin, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. He's making a connection between that generation of Israelites and this current generation of Corinthian Christians. And of course, that brings the application to us. And I think we'll see that as we work through this. But Paul isn't simply telling them the history of the Israelites so that the Corinthians can just learn from the past. He's telling them this so that they can understand the present, what it is that they're going through. See, Paul sees them making the same mistakes that the Israelite people did. He sees them heading down that same spiritual road, and it is frankly a road that is all too well traveled, even up to our present day. It's a road that leads to idolatry, to immorality, and ultimately to apostasy, denying Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is specifically connected to the opening of this, this whole section. He's still answering their question. Look back at the question in chapter 8, the first few verses. They've written him a question. And he's addressing this, and he says this, Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So how are these sections connected? Chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 8, which is really all still about um, the eating of food offered to idols. 
I found one New Testament scholar uh, speaking of this section. He said this. I thought this was interesting. He said, Paul's use of Israel's story is crucial to his case. The God with whom we have to do, he insists, is not merely some abstract divine principle that sets us free from polytheistic superstition. The God with whom we have to do is the God of Israel, a jealous God who sternly condemns idol worship and punishes all who dare to dabble in it. See, their argument, and and let me just say, I know that sometimes it can be hard to uh, keep all of these things straight or to recall these things back to mind when we, things that we talked about weeks ago, but their argument was this, we all know that there is only one God. That's what the Corinthians are saying. We all know that there's only one God. We also know that, that the gods to whom this food, this meat was offered to, they really don't exist. Therefore, we can eat this meat without consequence. And on the face of it, that is correct. Paul even acknowledges that. But he also says, hold on a minute, because you're walking really close to the line of idolatry. Like ancient Israel, the Corinthians have been set free from their past. They've been set free from their sin. They've been set free from their idolatry. And now they're on a, privilege, a pilgrimage to a, to a promised land. But the Corinthians, like us, are on a pilgrimage to a truer and better promised land. Yet they are in danger of being derailed on this journey by their own cravings, by their own lack of self-control, and by idolatry, just as Israel was. Like us, these brash and bold Corinthian Christians, they may not fear the power of, of, of idols or of idolatry, but they should fear the wrath of God. So this is where Paul is going with this. The nation of Israel, our spiritual fathers, as he says, they were chosen and established by God. They were given gifts by God, and he's going to pick up on that gift thread again in chapter 12. Yet they still sinned, and they they were disciplined or punished by God. Therefore, Paul writes this so that we could learn from their example, so that we could take these warnings to heart. Remember, these Corinthians think that they are strong and wise. That's been one of their character qualities. They think that they are strong and wise people. And so Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Ultimately, it is only a dependence upon God's faithfulness that will enable us to withstand temptation. Think of ourselves here at Logansville Church. Think of us. Just because we are the people of God, and just because He is so clearly working in our midst, even even giving us good gifts, this does not mean that we are immune from spiritual danger. It does not mean that we are immune from disaster. Just look to the Israelites, for example. 
Look at these first verses, and we can see here God's redemption and his provision. God's redemption and provision. Let me read again verses 1 to 5. He says, actually, let me start in verse 27 of chapter 9, because it's connected. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So can you see the connection in the previous verses? Paul is continuing the thought of watching yourself. Take heed over yourself. It's also important to remember that he's he's addressing the church. He he even calls them brothers, brethren. And as brothers, brethren and sistren, I guess, as brothers, they share the same spiritual heritage. He even, he even says, our fathers, because these Gentiles here in Corinth who have trusted in Christ have been grafted into the people of God, and we share a spiritual heritage with the believing Jews. And so Paul is saying that they, he's insisting that they must listen carefully and take to heart everything that he is saying here. And there's one more detail I want you to notice. Look at how many times, just in those first few verses, he uses the word all. All. It's every member of the Israelite people. Not just the weak or the lower class. Not just the strong. Not just the leaders. All of them. This is important to his argument. Throughout this letter... There are divisions and and factions between church members that are popping up uh, all over the place. We see it as they sue one another. We're going to see it again in chapter 11 as uh, when we come to the Lord's table. There are there are poor Christians who are coming to the communion services and they're going without. And there are rich Christians who who are bringing the food probably. And they're not sharing. And they're actually overindulging while others are going without. Paul is saying that all of them face God's discipline or even judgment if they fall into temptation and sin. Now throughout these verses, Paul brings up these sort of rapid-fire historical events. And so we're not going to do a deep dive into each example that he gives But I do want to just kind of briefly pull these apart so that we can understand what he's saying. And he begins by describing the Israelites as all under the cloud and all passing through the sea. This refers to their their protection by God who was present in the cloud as they left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. It's clear from that account, it's from Exodus chapter 14, that God is the one who is delivering them and protecting them. That is clear. And then in verse 2, he moves from a, from a mere historical event. Okay, he's referenced the Exodus. He moves from that into one that is intimately connected to the Corinthians. So let me read verse 2 again. 
And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The deliverance or the redemption of the wilderness generation. It is a symbol. It is a type or a foreshadow of the redemption of Christians. Just as they were delivered from their slavery to the Egyptians, Christians are delivered from their slavery to sin. And it's symbolized here by his use of the word baptism. Symbolically speaking, the cloud and the sea did for them what baptism does for us in Christ. Now here's what I mean. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 when he talks about baptism. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's talking about redemption. He's talking about salvation. How about in Titus chapter 3? He says something similar in verse, beginning in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not, by, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Their redemption... As Charles Hodge writes, their redemption made them disciples or followers of Moses. It placed them under obligation to recognize Moses' divine commission and to submit to Moses' authority. And then what did Moses do? He took them straight to Mount Sinai where God covenanted with them and gave them the law. Our redemption makes us disciples of a better redeemer, Jesus Christ who is also covenanted with us on a mountain, Calvary. And we are no less obligated to recognize his commission and to submit to his authority. This little comment here about baptism, this isn't about a mode of baptism as some people think. Rather, this is about the effect that it produces. In fact, Paul is saying here, I think the, the same thing that Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 uh, and following. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God saved them. God saved them in the ark. God saved them in the Red Sea. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, and from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Christ lifted me. Christ lifted me. When nothing else could help, Christ lifted me. And as Paul is alluding here, it was Moses then who was leading them. But he's simply a type or a, a foreshadow of the one who leads us. Jesus Christ. But not only did God redeem them, 
he also provided for their greatest needs. Look again at verses 3 and 4. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, he's clearly here referring to manna from heaven and water from the rock. And we we could say that that these things are spiritual in that when you look back through Exodus and, and the Pentateuch, we can see that they are miraculously provided, but then he ties the rock to Christ. We could spend all kinds of time on this. Here's the point. Just as Christ was present for the Corinthians, supplying their every need, so he was for the Israelites, and so he is for us. He's present. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He supplies our every need. In Christ, God supplies all of our needs. And let me just say this, and we kind of will move on here. We're going to get into this in the coming weeks, Lord willing, as we continue to unpack chapter 10 and then get into chapter 11. It is no coincidence that in talking about Christ's redemption and his provision for his people, it's no coincidence that Paul mentions spiritual food and spiritual drink and then soon starts talking about the Lord's Supper. In fact, he's going to bring it up in the next paragraph, beginning in verse 14. We'll get into that in the coming weeks. He's going to give full instruction about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. But it's no coincidence in that talking about spiritual food and spiritual drink, he goes quickly to the Lord's Supper. But for now, just remember that in Christ, God supplies all of our needs. Nevertheless, verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Simply put, they sinned and were overthrown, or really what that literally means is laid low in the wilderness. They sinned and they were laid low in the wilderness. Can you feel the application? God redeemed, he saved them, he provided for them, and they sinned, and so God disciplined them. Can you feel the application without having to actually spell it out? (laughs) Well, let me continue because he also gives four examples of the Israelites being laid low in the wilderness. And these are examples for us, he says. So verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us, these evidences of being laid low, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. One of the things that we need to remember is that this generation of our fathers, as Paul calls them, so often known as the wilderness generation because of their sin, even in the face of God's redemption and provision. So so listen to this. 
Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 26, says this. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become prey, I will bring in that they will know uh, the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure." Paul is saying that the wilderness generation should stand as a warning to us. And so he just pulls four quick examples from them to remind us of the sins that they indulged in despite their redemption, as well as the punishment that they faced. So so verse 7 again. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, don't forget the context here. Paul is taking them to task for their overconfidence with regard to eating food offered to idols. And here, right there in verse 7, he's quoting from Exodus 32, verse 6, which was the Israelite people's response and celebration of worshiping the golden calf. They sat down, they worshiped the golden calf, they offered sacrifices to the golden calf, and then they sat down to eat and rose up to play. That was their response to that worship, that idol worship. They did this all at the foot of Mount Sinai. They did this while they could still clearly remember walking through the dry seabed while the Egyptian army, the really the only world superpower of the time, pursued them on chariots. They remembered that. They witnessed that. They were redeemed by the Lord, and then they desired evil, Paul says. And they sat down to eat food that had been offered to an idol, and then they rose up to play, which is, frankly, a euphemism for sexual immorality. That's what it means. Don't forget, idolatry and immorality are always connected. That's why Paul goes where he does here in verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We cannot actually read the Bible, actually read it, and come to any other conclusion but that God takes sin seriously. Now now again, I I don't even want to go too deep into this uh, references to the Old Testament here that, that Paul is making, 
But he's talking about Numbers chapter 25, where Israel's immorality and idolatry were completely intertwined, and God killed the sinners. In fact, verse 4 of that passage, Numbers 25, says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. These were his people. These were the chosen ones. These were the leaders of his people. These were those whom he had saved from their slavery in Egypt. And God is love, right? Hang them in the sun? Hang them before the face of God? God takes sin seriously. We don't. Our society, our cult, whatever you want to, however you want to put it, we don't really take sin seriously. We kind of laugh at it or snicker, look the other way. Went to the mall yesterday. I don't know why. Constant disappointment, but I went to the mall just for a moment. How many same-sex couples walk around in the mall now? I know I'm kind of living a sheltered life in Logan County. It's everywhere, isn't it? And it's not just that. Sexual immorality is all over the place and celebrated. And even as Christians and as the church, we sometimes just wink at it. But God takes sin seriously. God takes sexual immorality seriously. Are we ready to grapple with that fact? Let's continue. Verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. The people, the people of Israel repeatedly spoke against God. But this time he's talking about what happened in Numbers 21. Let me just read a couple of verses. From Mount Hor they set out uh, by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food, no water, and we loathe the worthless food. So there is food, but they don't like it. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. They tested their Savior's patience. They chose not to trust in their Redeemer who has been providing for them. They chose not to trust in their Redeemer to provide for them as He said He would, as He had been all along. They despised His provision as worthless, and He immediately judged them so that many died in a terrifying way, frankly. And then finally in verse 10, Paul continues to warn us and the Corinthians, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is probably more of a general reference because they grumbled every chance they got. It's probably more of a general reference to several different Old Testament incidents. But listen to what the psalmist says as he recounts the history of Israel. It's Psalm 106. 
beginning in verse 21, talking about the history of the people of Israel, they forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Yet still, then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Paul tells us in verse 11 that these examples are cautionary tales. They are warnings for us as Christians. And when Christ came, the last days, the end of the ages began. That's what he means by that final line there in verse 11. That means that the next time that we hear from God, apart from in his word, the next time that we hear from God will be judgment. In other words, in the wilderness generation, those who rejected Moses and even rejected God's provision, if they experienced God's judgment, how much more will the Corinthians and us if we reject God's redemption and God's provision in Christ? Do you remember the end of Psalm 2? Do you remember Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage and the kings plot in vain? The very last verse, the very end of Psalm 2 says this. Kiss the son, S-O-N. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We are frail, but God is faithful. Verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So as Paul comes here in these last couple of verses in this paragraph, he comes to his point of application. But he also comes to really the crux of, of the Corinthian problem. And I think this is our problem too. Some of them feel very secure. And they believe that they stand safely within the covenant community, within the church, without fear of judgment, without fear of sin, uh, based on their own righteousness. Look at all the good things I've done. I'm a leader in this church. I'm a strong father. I believe in the Bible. They say things like, of course I believe. I asked Jesus into my heart at VBS when I was eight. Oh yes, I believe in God. doesn't matter if I participate in all kinds of sin. Or they may even say things like, yeah, I used to go to church. I believe I used to go to church, but those jerks were judgmental, and I'm a better Christian than them. When Paul says here in verse 12, Therefore, anyone, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
He's not talking about our standing in church or in the eyes of others, whoever that may be. He's talking about our standing before God. This is about taking heed, about being careful to stand firm in the faith. This is about being watchful. This is about quickly killing the sins that so easily entangle us. Trip us up and bring us low so that we're laid low. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 13 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Or the very end of this, this letter right here in chapter 16 when Paul will admonish them, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And hear me very carefully here. I want you to listen to me. I'm not trying to take away the assurance of anyone's salvation. Once you've been justified by faith, you stand in His grace. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. One of my goals for us as a church, especially over these last couple of years, is that we would be reminded regularly that for those who have repented of their sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have the assurance, we have the assurance that we have been pardoned. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you are not in Christ Jesus, you face condemnation, frankly. You face punishment, no matter how strong you think you are. No matter your standing in, in this community or, or any, if you think you are strong, be watchful, take heed lest you fall. But for us as Christians, we can read this as a warning as well. I've tried to make a distinction, a subtle distinction, between punishment and discipline. Those who are Christ's do not face his wrath. Those who are Christ's will never face God's wrath. But we may face his discipline. He disciplines those whom he loves. That discipline may be severe. For some of the people of Israel it was severe. And it was given to drive them to repentance. For some they were punished and they faced God's wrath because they did not believe. Now look at verse 13 and, and think of the Israelites. Before I read this, this is that famous verse. Think of the Israelites coming up out of the Red Sea, being led by the cloud, the glory of God. Think of them being fed manna from heaven by God himself. Think of them drinking water from the rock and, and the rock is Christ. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Near the end of his life, Moses wrote a song. It's Deuteronomy chapter 32. And in that song, he mentions, I'm not going to read the whole thing right now, 
But he mentions the rock several times. Listen to just a couple of passages from Deuteronomy 32. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. The rock is Christ, Paul says. He found him, that is Jacob, the people of Israel. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. Do you know why verse 13 here is true? Because God is faithful. Christ, the rock, is faithful. We are weak. We are tempted. We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But Christ is faithful. Frail children of dust and feeble as frail. In you do we trust nor find you to fail. Your mercies How tender, how firm to the end. Our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. O worship the king, O glorious above. O gratefully sing of his power and his love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. The promise of verse 13 is true because our maker, defender, redeemer, And even friend is faithful because Christ is faithful. Pray with me. Lord, we just have to offer up thanksgiving. Praise that you are faithful even when we are not. Father, there's a reason why at the beginning of all of our services we have to confess our sin because we have been prone to wander throughout the week. Yet you are faithful. As we are frail children of dust and feeble as frail, but our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend is strong and mighty. You have redeemed us and you have continued to provide for us through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, even as we come to the table this morning, we come not trusting in our own righteousness, but in your great mercy. Lord, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from your table, but you are gracious and merciful. So, Lord, as we do come, as we eat and drink, Father, help us, grant us to so commemorate and celebrate in the breaking of bread, in the drinking of the cup, the death of Jesus Christ, that we may feed on him in our hearts by faith, that we may be reminded of our unity with Christ because he died for us, because he made a new covenant in his death with us, that for all who would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be saved. 
So Father, we come to you this morning with hearts of thanksgiving and rejoicing. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.